Good evening to you. All right. Acts chapter 11 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. talking about that in the back room. <laughs> Verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, it's no great um, revelation to say that the context of chapter 11 is chapter 10. And that's always the case, but sometimes they're built together a little more tightly than in other places. And since we've been a month separated from uh, this chronology, we remember that chapter 10 involved God giving a vision to a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. He was a man who was seeking after God, that he was to send messengers uh, from the city of Caesarea down the coast to Joppa to find a man by the name of Peter and send for him and that he would come and tell them what they ought to do in order to know God, the message that God had for them. And uh, so that record of the great vision that God gave uh, to Peter and Peter coming then to Cornelius's house and uh, preaching the gospel and his entire household uh, being saved, trusting in Jesus for salvation, and then being baptized with the Holy Spirit, gift of tongues, other gifts being manifest in that same, uh, that same scene. And so that, that's the context of what has happened. So here in chapter 11, the Apostle Peter has uh, kind of come to the end of his ministry tour. It began in the city of Jerusalem, and then it moved to uh, Lydda and then to Joppa and Caesarea. And so he's now returned to the city uh, of Jerusalem. Now, uh, by the time he comes uh, to the city of, of Jerusalem, and maybe even prior to his uh, arrival, uh, word of his conduct uh, in the city of Caesarea, and most specifically his preaching the gospel uh, to the household of Cornelius, and then evidently as a part of that, uh, not only entering into Cornelius' house, a Gentile, uh, but also uh, partaking of food with uh, him at them as a Jew, news of this got back uh, to the apostles and other Jewish Christians in uh, Jerusalem. And so there was this group of Christians uh, misguided, and they're going to need to grow out of their error, but a, a group of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem at that time that were known uh, as the circumcision. They were a legalistic sect uh, where they believed that uh, Gentiles could be saved. So that was taking a pretty big step for the average Jew and the, uh, the teaching of the Scriptures and attitude of the Jews toward uh, the Gentiles in that day that they could be saved, we could be saved, but it required being circumcised and then honoring the Sabbath and the law of Moses. And so that's what uh, was re uh, uh, they felt uh, was uh, required for salvation. And so they contended with Peter here, we're told. And that word contended is an important one to notice. Uh, in verse 2, uh, they contended with him uh, over the fact that he had uh, brought salvation to the house of Cornelius and uh, and, uh, and apparently eating a meal with them. And the complaint uh, is there in verse 3. You went into uncircumcised men, uh, that is uncircumcised, uh, not being, uh, having the marks of a covenant relationship with God like the Jews did, and you ate with them. Now, some commentators uh, look at this and they, they say that the princi principal uh, complaint of the 
circumcision here was not over the salvation of uh, the Gentiles uh, in this uh, scene in chapter 10, but over the fact that uh, Peter violated their custom of a Jew not eating with a, uh, a Gentile. And so they had a problem with, uh, so the commentators, some of them say, Peter's willingness to eat with them. But clearly, as we'll get to verse 18, uh, where it declares, uh, then God, as they make this, this light goes on for them, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And so it reveals that their contention with uh, Peter didn't just have to do with his eating a meal with them, uh, but uh, had to do with the fact that they could be uh, saved. So they called Peter on the carpet for what it is that he has done there in the city of Caesarea and uh, give an explanation for his conduct there related to these, uh, this Gentile household. Now, anytime, as you see that word uh, contended, uh, it, it, when, when somebody contends with another person, uh, it's usually an indication that they strongly feel that they are right and the other person is wrong. And that's the position that typically uh, you will contend from, certainly in, in this situation. So they believe what Peter has done here is wrong. Uh, there is no explanation for it. Uh, that could uh, sanctify or make it right. And so they lead right out of the gate by contending uh, with him. Now, Peter uh, had to anticipate that when he returned to Jerusalem, uh, following this preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and them uh, being saved, and that was a first for the apostles at that point, he had to feel that uh, have a hunch that God was going to do that, number one, as he was there in Caesarea and received the vision that we'll read about in just a moment. And so he very carefully brought six Jewish friends uh, with him as witnesses to his innocence uh, against the charges that he knew would be coming. And uh, he's going to produce them as witnesses in kind of this uh, this hearing that is going to go on. And so poor Peter here, he's in these are miserable shoes uh, to be in. And so here I think we see a witness, a, a common mistake, even in Christian uh, circles and certainly even among uh, Christian leaders. And that is believing something uh, to be true without knowing all of the facts. But but believing it, assuming that we know all of the facts, and then our first interaction with a person is contention. It is accusation before we even allow them an explanation for what it is that's happened here. And you notice that in verse 2, you've got the word contended, and then you get down to verse 4, but Peter explained to them. And that's to have it exactly uh, backwards. This is going to be a very embarrassing uh, episode. Uh, it's going to get egg on their face for these that lead with a contention rather than a humble request for an explanation uh, that, uh, that is, is going to humble them and, and clarify the situation. And so they don't do what the Bible tells us to do. Uh, the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks about the love uh, of God. It talks about the fruit of the Holy uh, Spirit and that the love of God uh, gives the other person the benefit of the doubt. It does not think evil as the first reaction and it hopes all things. And so uh, here we have the uh, violation of that. And I'm convinced it is a violation of what I am convinced is the single most disobeyed commandment in the body of Christ today. And, and that is the commandment that when we have a problem with another person, uh, to go to that person privately, to go to that person 
and uh, that has sinned against us or we believe has sinned against us and get an explanation for their uh, actions. Moreover, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, I sh- I'm sure I'm entirely alone in the history of the body of Christ. And I say uh, that uh, there I have looked at certain situations that have occurred as a Christian, even as a leader, and I see what someone has done in a situation. I run it all the way through my mind a thousand different ways, and I look at it every way that I can, and I, can, I conclude that it can only mean this. It can only mean that they did this. There can't be any other explanation. And when I do that, and I misjudge the situation, then I lead into that conversation with that person with contention, rather than with asking for an explanation so that I can understand what was going on. I mean, surely they knew the Apostle Peter very, very well, and and despite knowing him very, very well, and how serious he was about the things of the Lord, nobody thought to think, uh, listen, that, this can't be true related to the Apostle Peter. I mean, let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. We all know him. There has to be a perfectly good explanation. And yet, sometimes just this strength of this uh, drive, we judge it, we view it as wrong, and since there can't be any other explanation than the one that we've come up with, we skip the explanation part and we head right into uh, a, conden- a contention uh, with them. And then we find out later by means of an explanation uh, that I've really put my foot uh, in my mouth. And then, of course, the, the carnality of our flesh then be- begins to look at uh, the situation and think, how can I get out of this now without admitting uh, what I've done and then apologize? And, of course, uh, you can't. I mean, when you've been put down, sit down. And that happens. And one of the great things that happens in terms of having this occur within our life, and I'm sure it occurs in most of our lives at one time or another, is that when we lead with contention, we lead with judgment, rather than uh, seeking an explanation, we end up getting humbled in that situation. And it's a part of being humbled one time or many, many times, and asking for forgiveness for leading in this way, judging the person in this way, that uh, some, at some point, depending upon how ingrained this is within our life and our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, pretty soon that begins to hurt so much, uh, like touching a, 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 a burner on the stove, that pretty soon we stop and we think a little bit before we judge and then we contend and we realize I better get an explanation here before I go off half-cocked in, uh, in, in all of this. And it's an important part of having that develop within our lives. The danger of this is uh, in, in the Bible from one end to the other. So I was thinking about this Um, I think all the way back into Joshua chapter 22. You remember that the children of Israel, all 12 tribes united together in the conquest of the promised land. Two and a half of the tribes, you might remember, uh, wanted their, uh, their land, their allotment of the land to be on the other side of the Jordan River from uh, Canaan. But they fought for the conquest of the land. And then after the land had been conquered, they then returned to the land and their families that were there and to settle into that territory. As they're making their way back from Israel, before they crossed the Jordan River, they set up an altar to God. And, uh, and as they set this altar up, word gets back to the other uh, uh, ten and a half tribes. And the word gets back to them that these two and a half tribes have now set up an altar to a false god, and now they're engaging in idolatry. And you know what the ten and a half tribes said to themselves? They said there must be a perfectly good explanation for this. 
And uh, we know they have helped us conquer the land, and we know that they wouldn't do this. And so we ought to find out what it is that's going on here. No, instead, they strapped on all of their military weapons. And the military of the ten and a half tribes raced over to the area of the two and a half and were determined to wipe them out. And then finally, when they uh, come in with their contention here, and finally the two and a half tribes are able to explain, no, we built this altar to God as a symbol of the fact that we helped you conquer the land And so that in the future, the ten and a half tribes will not forget us. The two and a half tribes as being a part of uh, Israel and uh, the people of Israel. And it was really not a a shining moment in the history of, of God's people or its leadership. They didn't even confess they were wrong. It was kind of like, well, okay, why don't you say that to begin with? And, uh, and, and went on, on their way. But it's, it can be deeply ingrained um, uh, within us. And even if Peter was wrong in what he did at the household of Cornelius, it's still the wrong way uh, to approach someone, the wrong tone, a tone of contention. Galatians chapter uh, 6, verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is overtaken in any trespass, even if they have sinned, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also uh, be tempted. So the contention and the accusation is laid out, and then Peter, he explains himself and defends his actions. So he explained it to them, but he did in order uh, from the beginning, saying, I was minding my own business in the city of Joppa. I was praying. Can't find any fault with that. Very spiritual activity. And, uh, I, and, and in a trance, I saw a vision and an object ascending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And then I observed it intently, this sheet, and considered, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and the birds of the air. In other words, it was filled with Uh, unclean animals, according to the ceremonial law of Moses. And then Peter said, I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat these unclean animals. And I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time in my life entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And of course, uh, God was preparing Peter's heart for the fact, not, to, not for him to change his kosher diet, that would happen uh, soon enough. We know later in the book of Acts, he's just scarfing down BLTs and uh, cheeseburgers left and right. That's not really there. Uh, but the idea was to get him to stop looking at the Gentiles as someone that is unclean and beyond the concern uh, and the reach uh, of God, to stop calling them uh, unclean and so unclean as, as, as God to be uh, interested in their salvation. And, and so what God has cleansed, you must not call common. For this, he said, was done three times and all uh, were drawn up again into heaven. And at that moment, uh, there uh, three men stood before me Uh, before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. So remember, it's about lunchtime when that happened. And God spoke to him, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And he also told Peter, word of knowledge, a revelation. There are also uh, men downstairs that have come for you. Uh, Don't ask any questions, go with them. And Cornelius, of course, had sent servants to Joppa immediately upon uh, the angel telling him to send for Peter and Joppa and that Peter would speak to them the message that they needed to hear. And so here is those three are there. All of this is now confirmed by the circumstances here uh, as, it's, as it's unfolding and, uh, and uh, it, that having been sent to me from Caesarea. And then the Spirit told me to go with them. Now, 
Anytime any of us are accused of wrongdoing or uh, we're being misunderstood in a situation, the sooner we can put God between us and our accusers, uh, the better. And that's what he does here in this situation. You think you have a beef with me because you think I did this all on my own. The beef that you have is with God. God did this. The Holy Spirit did this. I would have never come up with it, uh, this on my own. Then the Holy the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. So Peter again is very. He knows the circumcision. He knows the legalism. He knows what's going on. He not only brings the six men with him to Cornelius' house, but he brings them to this hearing because uh, he knows he's going to get uh, called onto the carpet because he's got some splaining to do. And so uh, we entered the house and he told us, Cornelius did, how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and send for Simon whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And Peter said, that was what was, uh, uh, he had been told. That's why I went. And as I began to speak, he said, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us, the Jews, uh, in the beginning on the day of Pentecost. And so Peter said, I was just getting started with my sermon, and God interrupted it by uh, saving uh, them, bearing witness to the gospel, and they became saved. It's always um, embarrassing when God interrupts a preacher's sermon. I mean, you're used to it elsewhere, but when God says, no, that's enough, and then I'll take her from here. You've got the death, burial, and resurrection out here, and, and uh, that's all I'm wanting here. Wait a second, I've got seven more points to my sermon here. What are, you, what are we talking about? You know, the time I've put into this? So this beautiful work occurs, and the Holy Spirit, again, He lets them know, you are up against the Holy Spirit. I could no more make them born again and then baptize them with the Holy Spirit and give them the gifts of the Holy Spirit than you could. Think about what it is that happened in that household and think about what you are ascribing to me. You know me as Peter. I can't get out of my way half the time. How do you think I'm at the, at the, the foundation of the core of this? And so he, again, points them uh, to the Holy Spirit as, as the explanation uh, for all of this. And then Peter, in verse 16, he said, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, that is Jesus, how he said, uh, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, the conversion experience, being born again, and then the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the power to live the Christian um, life. Peter does something very important in verse 16, and that is he brings out to his audience uh, that what the Holy Spirit did and what he was participating in with the Holy Spirit had a biblical foundation. He said, you remember Jesus, promised that he would do this. And all that happened in Cornelius' home is what Jesus promised he would do for his people after a spiritual birth and then the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The reason that that's important to understand is that probably in uh, the body of Christ, there is no... Um, greater area in which just pure wackiness and craziness is ascribed and believed about something than teaching that goes on concerning the Holy Spirit. 
And Peter doesn't argue with them for what it is that God did. From silence, he argued with them from the Scriptures, from Jesus' words himself. And so you have all kinds of things. I mean, it's just embarrassing, really, uh, so often, where all of these crazy antics that are uh, blamed upon the Holy Spirit, and this is what the Holy Spirit did, and, and you look at it and it says, and you think to yourself, it looks nothing like Christ. It looks like nothing like what He looks like in the Scriptures. Nothing like what He would ever do among His people. And, uh, and yet this gets ascribed to the, the Holy Spirit. You remember that, um, and we'll get into it in, in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, where Paul comes to the city of Berea and uh, preaches the gospel to them. And he declared concerning them, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, in that number one, they received the word of God with all readiness of mind. And number two, they searched the Scriptures to see whether what I had told them uh, was the truth. And Paul wasn't offended by that at at all. And so, uh, so often related to the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, people will look and they uh, they will um, use the silence of the Scriptures concerning certain crazy practices and say it isn't forbidden in the scriptures the Bereans and we need to have it too need to have a higher standard than that and that is not to argue it from silence but to say where is the biblical foundation for what you're ascribing to the Holy Spirit and Peter is careful to do that I'm not afraid of anything the Holy Spirit does. My life is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Yours is a life is a miracle uh, of, of the Holy Spirit. And uh, as the old saying goes, you know, we don't need any uh, new experiences. We just need uh, any new truths. We just need new experiences in the old truths. There's so much that's legitimate related to the person and work of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit, being born again, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this wonderful supernatural of the Christian life. We don't have to resort to silence, uh, but uh, to stay safely within the perimeters of Scriptures. There's uh, so much that can be um, uh, enjoyed and and to be experienced and to be confident that this is a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Peter continued in verse 17, if therefore God gave them the same gift, that is salvation, as he gave us when we believed. That's how I know it's salvation. This is the, they believed uh, in, uh, unto salvation on the Lord Jesus. Who was I that I could withstand God? So he turns it back on them. I'm just going to tell you what the Holy Spirit did. Now you tell me, Mr. Contender, what would you have done in that same situation? Oh, time out. Hey, hold on a second. Are we going to have Gentiles getting saved? And don't offer me a meal afterwards? Or No, he realizes they would have done the exact same thing that he had done if, he was, if they were in his uh, his shoes here. So what was I, uh, 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 who was I that I could withstand God? This was, as people say, this was a God thing. And when they heard these things, they became silent. Oh, I understand that silence. Again, been put down, sit down. And so they've been put in their place. They had intended to put Peter in his place. It's not what happened here because they got contending ahead of an explanation, and then they glorified God, and you've got to give them credit for that. That light went on for them, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life, everlasting life. Well, you know, um, probably conservatively, 98% of us in this room are Gentiles, most of the world is uh, uh, Gentile. So it's no big deal for us to hear that God loves the Gentiles and He wants to save the Gentiles as much as the Jews. 
But we weren't raised under the old covenant and raised at the time of Jesus where the attitude in, in terms of the religious uh, the religious systems, Jewish religious systems at the time, taught that God had no interest in the Gentiles at all. So what is happening here that God was as interested in the Gentiles as he was in the Jews and willing to bring them into his family and save them as ever he was to save a Jew, their mind was exploding. This was something that was, be, they, uh, this was inconceivable to them. They never heard this in their entire uh, life. And now they hear it. They hear it from Peter, and they accept the facts of it. Every one of us, when we become a Christian, we bring all kinds of carnality and all kinds of prejudice into our relationship with God. Every one of us does. We bring our life history into it, our beliefs into it, the indoctrinations of our family, the indoctrinations of schools, the indoctrinations of the culture. We bring all of that uh, into our relationship with God now. Justification, salvation, happens in an instant. But sanctification is a lifelong uh, work. And so this was a part of that sanctification within their uh, lives. They brought a wrong attitude concerning the Gentiles, a wrong attitude concerning the heart of God, loving the whole world. And so God now just patiently and faithfully undoes those prejudices, undoes that carnality, and moves them toward being like His heart. And we all recognize it in our own lives. We all come into the body of Christ with prejudices and uh, ideas about other people and ideas that are false about all, all kinds of things. And we think about how patient God has been with us, not to whack-a-mole us uh, right at the start, but to begin to walk us through and open up our eyes to how big His heart is toward the world, how far our heart is from His heart, and then to change us. And it's a wonderful, wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. And it occurs in each of our lives. And they were no different uh, at all in, in this regard. They had a lot of baggage uh, to get over that they brought into, uh, into their uh, Christian life. And so Peter is growing. Now they're growing as Jews uh, in, in all of this. And that kind of uh, is the, the conclusion to the events there in Caesarea. And then in verse 19, uh, we're told, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen uh, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word, God's word, the gospel, his word, to no one but the Jews only. So you remember that uh, Saul, that Pharisee by the name of Saul, uh, who uh, meted out this tremendous persecution of Christians in the city of Jerusalem, driving these Christians out into all of the surrounding uh, areas and cities because of the, the depth of the persecution uh, within the city. And so they went out into all of the surrounding countries and territories, but they brought with them the gospel and the word of God and what God had done in their lives. They took it with them and then they began to share these things in a new environment that circumstances had kind of forced them uh, uh, into. It must be very, very hard to be the devil. Uh, he, he puts a stick in the hand of the apostle uh, 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 in, the, in Saul, long, soon to become the apostle Paul, and it's like he starts to beat a campfire with a stick, and these uh, flames and sparks begin to go in all directions. And that's what happened with the gospel. And it, and it was just God moving it out of Jerusalem, uh, further out into the Gentile world, uh, into uh, the Roman uh, world. And so uh, we remember that this persecution drove uh, Philip into Samaria 
Uh, and then uh, a revival broke out among the Samaritans and they, uh, uh, they got saved as a result of it. And here we get the rest of the story. It wasn't just Philip. And uh, it was lots and lots of Christians that this happened to. And uh, they, they took the gospel with them into Phoenicia. That's modern day Lebanon, Cyprus, same island as we know it uh, today. Very large Jewish population in Cyprus at that time. And then into the city of Antioch. But when they came to these cities, you notice in, in verse 19, they preached Jesus and, uh, and preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. So again, the 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 early church is very much a Jewish church. And so they're dealing with the same things. Uh, We can only go to the Jews here with with this message. And so they preached solely to the Jews that were uh, living there. And this spread of the gospel into the Roman Empire uh, was several years in, in taking place. And so... Here it is, only preaching uh, to the Jews in these various cities. But some of them uh, were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, and Antioch is going to become the center for uh, missions in the early church, not Jerusalem. God is going to do it from the city of Antioch. As you might imagine, Here you have God is, he has in large part reached the Jews within Jerusalem, reached the Jews within Israel itself and the surrounding areas. He's still going to be reaching Jews that are uh, dispersed among the Roman Empire, but they've by and large have been reached at this point. And now God's focus is turning to the Gentiles But as we've seen the attitude of the Jewish religious leaders, Christians there in the city of Jerusalem, I mean, this is slow going for them. I I mean, God wanted to move among the Gentile world way faster than these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had any idea that he was interested in. And so God just kind of bypasses them in terms of, uh, of missionary outreach, and he centers it in a Gentile uh, city. And so uh, they come uh, there, and, uh, and in that city, one of these, some of these people just woke up one day under the Spirit's direction, of course, coming to Antioch, and they decided, well, what would be the harm of saying these same things we're telling all of the Jews to Gentiles, to Hellenists, Gentiles who are under a Greek culture. And this is a big moment for them. And, and then a couple of these people decided, let's do it and let's see what God does. And so they take that step and they do it, and the hand of the Lord was them, with them, and a great number then of these uh, uh, Hellenists, they believed and they turned to the Lord. And so that's like a confirmation. Okay, I think we heard the Lord there. He's interested in saving. We shouldn't just be preaching to the Jews. We should do it, but not just them, but to preach also to the Gentiles. So news of these, uh, of these things is great the gospel being preached now to Gentiles, large numbers of Gentiles now uh, uh, becoming saved. The word of this gets back to uh, the leadership of the church there in Jerusalem. And they, so they sent out uh, Barnabas as far as Antioch to go uh, check it out. And we saw Barnabas earlier in the book of Acts. He's the son of consolation. He's an encourager. He is a natural born uh, encourager of of the body of Christ. And so they said, you go out and see what it is that's going on. Go all the way to Antioch and bring back a report to us. And when he came and he had seen the grace of God that was was operating among these Gentile Christians, he was glad. And then he encouraged them uh, all that with purpose of heart they should continue in the Lord. God's choice of Antioch 
is an interesting one. The city of Antioch at that time, uh, it's in large part a ruin today, but it was the third largest city in, uh, in the Roman Empire, after Rome and after Alexandria. Very, very wicked city. Very, very sin-filled and idolatrous uh, city. Antioch was on a par with the city of Corinth in terms of recognizing not only is that city evil in the practice of evil, but that is a place that exports evil to the rest of the Roman Empire. That was their reputation, the reputation of Antioch. And yet God begins a church, and He begins the church that will become the sending church in, in the early church in terms uh, of missions. Again, as we looked at things uh, this morning, so often, in, and it requires of us as Christians to have a, a much a longer view, a biblical view of um, events around us, uh, much longer certainly uh, than a 24-hour uh, news cycle. And to realize that as different places become immersed in sin and in wickedness, rebellion against God, become exporters uh, of all of that, it's not the end of the world. We don't like it, but it's not the end of the world. Because it's going to be cities like that where the consequences, the personal and societal consequences of rebelling against God, the pain that it's going to cause, the casualties that it's going to cause, is going to be felt first. And people will recognize our very existence depends on having a change of mind about the gods that we worship and, uh, and how we uh, worship them and what we believe. And then uh, they turn and to look at things. And yes, there's so much that we don't like that is, is happening in, in our country in a lot of, uh, of different places. But to realize that uh, always it is always preparing the soil for the seed of the gospel, for truth, and people are hungry for truth, or sometimes God has to make them hungry for truth, but sooner or later He can get through to the hardest of us, and, and they're being prepared. And so we don't give up uh, on anything. We realize evil is, one of the things about evil is that um, it, can only, it, it can only live and exist uh, off of uh, health. It's cancer. And, and so there comes a point where the cancer or the evil, now there's not enough health for it to live off of. And then that's why evil all, and sin always sows the seed for its own destruction. You take a city like San Francisco that we talk about on things, and you see the number of businesses that are leaving, the number of small business owners that say, this is an impossible environment. Uh, to do business in, and the health, is, the health of the city is being driven out. And you can only do that for so long uh, before now there isn't enough that is healthy uh, to support the practice of evil. And, and then it collapses, and then the light uh, goes on. And so Antioch was uh, one of those, those kind of cities, and God just breaks in and and, uh, the, and uh, the gospel is preached and uh, the wickedness of the city, the idolatry of the city has prepared them for the truth of the gospel. And they turn in great numbers. And, uh, and so uh, here we have Barnabas. He comes in, he sees it, he's so excited and he, he encouraged them. And that, those two words are really important in verse 23. He encouraged um, them. And, and in verse 24, for he was a good man, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and of uh, faith. And under his encouragement, uh, the great harvest that had already begun, and a great many people were added to the Lord. <clears throat> I, I just want to speak to those of you who are um, by nature and uh, by the Holy Spirit, you are Barnabases. You are encouragers by personality. And to just encourage you and how important 
that is in the body of Christ. Not all of us are like that. Um, I like to think that I've become uh, more of an encourager the longer that, that my life has gone on. But, uh, you know, as the leader of, of something, that's a pretty serious thing to lead a church and all. Uh, but it's my inclination uh, period is when something begins to happen, I begin to look at, first and foremost, look at the implications of it. Where is this going to go? And what are the problems that are going to develop? Now, you've got to have people like that in every church. You've got to have people like that in the body of Christ. But we can't all be like that. There's other Christians who are loaded completely in the other direction. They don't think through all of that kind of stuff, and I don't say it negatively. They just come in and see something that is going on, and they just uh, encourage everybody in, uh, that's in the middle of it. And Barnabas was one of those people. And new Christians need encouragement. They need encouragement. And we all do. But new Christians especially, and Barnabas comes in, he is just what the doctor ordered, the good physician, in order to bring them uh, that encouragement. And he was a great encouragement uh, to them, especially his authority from, uh, from Jerusalem. I, I mention it every so often, and it's because this man was the very first man that I would consider to be a Barnabas that I ran into in my Christian life. And it's a man, a pastor by the name of Frank Ippolito. He pastors a Calvary Chapel in Vineland, New Jersey uh, now. He actually started driving over to start the church, Calvary Chapel Modesto here, before I came in. They ran him out of town, tarred and feathered him, pitchforked, just drove him out of town. I said, Frank, I understand why they did it. You ought to go on to the other coast. That's not what happened. It's a long story that I won't get into. But he... In that, at that time, and remember, it's very much a revival atmosphere, not just in Calvary Chapel, but in, in the body of Christ as a whole. So many new Christians, and he just was one that would encourage us to take our next step in serving the Lord, that God has a call upon our lives, and to do this. And, and God used them in my life. I, I started to um, lead a home Bible study way before I had any business leading a home Bible study to the natural eye, uh, but not in, in, in God's mind. And he encouraged so many of us in, uh, in that way, and we need that kind of encouragement. And so uh, don't lose that, and don't lose your, uh, your influence in that way uh, in, in the body of Christ. Use that gift of encouragement uh, in, a, in a powerful, powerful uh, way. It, it was said of uh, D.L. Moody, famous evangelist in, uh, centered out of Chicago in the United States of America, church history, and it was said of him, uh, so many people becoming Christians under his revival and his uh, preaching, and one of the very first things that he would do is he'd take a new believer, he would ha have them uh, hand out Bibles at the door uh, concerning the services, he would get them to do something. Uh, to now encourage them that God not only wanted to save them, but to use them, get their feet wet in that, and then begin a lifetime of service. He's very, very wise in that. And that's the spirit and, and the attitude of, of Barnabas uh, as well. And so this great work is happening there in Antioch. And then Barnabas does something that's strange. He leaves this dynamic environment of Antioch, and he departed for the city of Tarsus to seek Saul, soon to become the Apostle, uh, 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 Paul, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul. So he goes to seek Saul, leaves Antioch. It's a journey of between 100 and 200 miles. And he makes his way to Tarsus to seek out Saul of Tarsus. He looked at this incredible thing that God was doing and he said, I know exactly the man uh, that we need uh, for what it is that God is uh, doing here. And he goes to get Saul 
And when he had brought, found him, he brought him to uh, Antioch. And so here is uh, Saul. Uh, Barnabas looks and says, we need somebody who is uh, very deep in uh, the Scriptures, someone who's had a real encounter with God, born again, someone who has a calling of God upon uh, their life, somebody who understands Jewish culture, but someone who understands and has lived long years in Gentile culture. Paul is the guy, Saul is the guy that we need, and he goes uh, to, uh, to, get, uh, to get them. All of this happens 13 years after Paul's or Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And so his life before Barnabas comes to him and draws him into this work at Antioch, and then into the missionary journeys of Paul that would follow uh, all of that. Paul has been saved now for 13 years. Three years he spent in Arabia, and then 10 years he has spent uh, back in his hometown of Tarsus and, and in the, the surrounding uh, areas of uh, regions of Syria and Cilicia. Paul talks about it in the book of Galatians. He says, afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, uh, which were in Christ. Uh, they were o- but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us, now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified uh, God in me. You think about this. The apostle, uh, to become the apostle uh, Paul, he gets saved. He knows he has quite a call on his life from God. Because when he is blinded and sitting in the city of Damascus, God tells Ananias to go lay hands on him, and and he tells Ananias that I am telling him that he is going to preach for me before Gentiles and before kings and before multitudes. And Paul knows this about his life for 13 years. And yet he doesn't exalt himself into that in his own timetable. He allows the preparation of God for the magnitude of that ministry to be accomplished in his life. Now we live in a culture that is very, very impatient and very, very carnal and selfish. And so it's like after six weeks, if they haven't noticed the great gift that I am to God and the body of Christ, I'm going to take things into my own hands and start my own ministry. And yet if the Apostle Paul could wait with his calling for God's timing related to it, then it's important for us to do the same. There's an old joke about uh, pastors, and really it's anyone, uh, any minister, and all of us are ministers, We talk about in our culture that we want one year of preparation for 50 years of service. And we never want to hear about 50 years of preparation, or 13, for one year, 20 years, or 30 years of service. But God does that. You see how he works his work of preparation in Moses and in David and all the way through the Scriptures. He calls them and then he prepares them, their character and and their understanding of the Scriptures. Uh, He then uh, prepares their character and then he launches them uh, into all of this. So with the apostle, I'm not advocating for 13 years for anybody. That's between God and an individual. But you think about Paul, the the people he is going to stand in front of in very short order to become next to Jesus. Of course, he's in his own category, the most prominent person in church history. And of course, God is going to use that time for him to understand the implications of Jesus upon the law and the prophets. That the law and the prophets was not written as a means for us to work our way into heaven. It all spoke of Christ. 
And so here he is, he, uh, uh, all of that work gets done, somebody comes to him, and then he recognizes the timing of it, and he comes then uh, into the city of Antioch uh, with, uh, with Barnabas, and they begin this great work of founding, you notice, uh, the, uh, the church in Antioch and the Word of God. So it was that for a whole year, uh, they assembled with the church and they taught a great many people. And so the teaching, the emphasis upon teaching by uh, Paul uh, and, and by uh, Barnabas. And so we preach to the lost. We preach the gospel to the lost. But once we're saved, our great need is to be taught the Word of God. And they recognize that. We've got to give these Christians in this very sin-filled environment a foundation in the Word of God so they can walk victoriously in their Christian life in this environment. And it came with the teaching of the Word of God. That's why it's a great mistake for every Sunday morning to just be preaching the gospel solely. I, I am not an evangelist, but I try to do what Paul told Timothy, and that is do the work of an evangelist. Share the gospel. But there is the teaching of the Word of God because the necessity of the knowing the Word of God to spiritual maturity. It's, it, it is what thoroughly furnishes us unto every good work in the, in the Christian life. And so, uh, unapologetically, it's a, the emphasis is upon uh, the Word of God because 95% of the people in the room are, are Christians at that point. And then we address the others then uh, with uh, with the gospel, and uh, and so this teaching of the word of God. I think it's a it's an interesting thing uh, to watch today. And of course, you know, there's the the goofy examples are, are just like the news, where it can seem like five people or five are are ten million people, uh, or you know, online or on social media or that kind of of thing. But there is a a uh, there is a discernible movement from uh, teaching the Bible uh, and teaching it in its depth, teaching the entirety of uh, the Bible. H uh, how many churches do you, do you know that you could go to and hear uh, the book of Leviticus taught? And yet... As, as the old saying goes, uh, it, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian to reach the whole world. We need all of it. And this movement away from the teaching of God's Word, because we think that the audience or the congregation won't be able uh, to endure that, the folly of doing it now, while our country and certainly our state is becoming Antioch, is this is the world's worst time to do that because this is when we really need to know the Word of God to be able to stand in those environments. And I would advocate not only for teaching from this pulpit or any uh, pulpit in any Christian church, but for the study of the Word of God on our own. You all know the environment that you're in. You know what family you're in. You know what school you're in. You know what workplace you're in. You know the challenges that are in that place. And then to look and say, man, if I wait for Pastor Damien to talk about this subject, it'll be a hundred years as slow as that guy goes through uh, the Bible. And to realize, no, that's it. I can open this up and learn what does the Bible say about what I'm facing. And then individual, personal study of the Word of God. And we're told there at the end of verse 26, and the disciples were first called Christians uh, in Antioch. And the word, it's interesting to realize we use the word Christian all of the time today. The term is only used three times in the New Testament. And, and this, this title was given to Christians. They didn't take it to themselves. It was put upon them by other people. And so the, the, uh, and it, it means uh, Christ-like or Christ-followers. 
And, and so here, used probably derogatorily uh, concerning them. And, uh, but the culture around them recognized these people are completely different from what the broader culture in Antioch is producing. We got to get a name for them so we know who we're talking about. And they came up with the name uh, Christian. And the Christians liked it and they embraced what was probably uh, given to them uh, derogatorily, and they have, we have made it our identity ever since. And, uh, and, and so they, uh, they did. I don't know that, I, I follow college football. It, um, it, by the Lord's grace and your prayers in college football, I got through this recent sickness. Um, I can't do any work when I'm, when I'm sick. And, and so it's really unproductive time, and I, and I love to be productive. So I'm watching these real estate shows and these home repair shows and just mindless nonsense. And I'm certainly not putting college football in the category of mindless nonsense. But I do like following presently uh, Texas and their team. And so they, apparently something happened and then a, a, a title or some kind of a, a in, insult was uh, put against their teams and they made their team and they made t-shirts uh, of, uh, of the insult against them and they began to, uh, to wear it. So they embraced the hate that was being directed toward them. Uh, they liked it and it spoke about them, so they embraced it on a much higher level. Christians did here in Antioch. And in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem uh, to uh, the city of Antioch. One of them was named Agabus, and uh, he, he stood up there in, in Antioch, and he showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine that would come throughout the entire world, which would happen uh, in the days of Claudius uh, Caesar. So he prophesies this. The church recognizes this to be a prophecy come from God. And so then the disciples, Gentile disciples, in the city of, of Antioch, they then, knowing that this was going to come upon the church in, in Jerusalem, uh, each one according to his ability, determined to send relief, that is financial relief for food and all, to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And who were the brethren dwelling in Judea? Jews. Jews. And, uh, and uh, this they also did, and they sent it to the elders in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So you can imagine now the impact that receiving a gift from the body of Christ that is made up almost exclusively in the city of Antioch of Gentiles, and, and it is a witness to the genuineness of their conversion and concern for the Jews and the whole body of Christ, not encumbered by uh, the prejudices of the Jews, they then send money to help the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and that would have been a powerful witness that God has done something very real in their lives. Uh, there's an old, an old joke about um, uh, somebody, uh, was it a water baptism and, uh, and a pastor or something like this, and he was talking with uh, the elders of the board or something like this, and he, and he said, have you ever noticed that when people get water baptized, they always take their wallet out first? They never allow their money to get baptized. Now, I don't share in that at all. That is not my experience with the body of Christ at all. I'm not pulling your leg. That is not my experience with the body of Christ. But the, it's, a, it's a humorous way of saying that once people put their money where their mouth is, now you're talking about something genuine. And there would have been that recognition of their genuine love and care for the Jews and would have played a large part in now uh, bringing these two uh, groups together in this unique thing called uh, the body of Christ. Well, we'll stop there.
um, uh, tonight and pick it up, uh, God willing, next time in chapter 12. I told Mike, uh, our, one of our worship leaders here and leading us tonight to be ready for a meditative set tonight because I probably would go short. And so, Mike, I'm so sorry, um, but he's used to that. The worship team, they prepare a meditative set. I shouldn't tell you this. They prepare a meditative set for every Sunday night. And um, do you know how many of those meditative sets have never seen the light of day? But the reward for them is the same. And, uh, but that's just how long it took us to get through uh, tonight, or at least me too. So let's stand together. We'll have the worship team uh, come forward and close us in a, a worship song. We're thankful for them and their gifts. And uh, let's pray together. Father, we do see ourselves in our own calling and your work in our lives uh, clearly evident in what we read in this chapter. And we thank you for it. Thank you that you save us in an instant and you save us in all of our carnality and all of our prejudices and all of our pride and our arrogance. And then you sanctify us from that point on and make us more and more like Christ. We see your patience and your gentleness, Lord, with these Jewish believers, and we recognize that same work of your Holy Spirit in our lives as you are conforming us evermore to the image of Christ and bringing our heart in alignment with yours. And we thank you for that work tonight uh, in, in our lives. Thank you for this time that we've enjoyed in your word together this evening. Thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.